one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. of Talking Space to start off the brand new year. You'll notice that the numbering has changed for our episode. This is episode 501, meaning the first episode of our fifth season of Talking Space. My name is Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me for this special episode is Mark Ratterman. Welcome, Mark. Can't possibly be our fifth year uh, doing this, but, well, let's see, 2009, 2010, 2011, 2012, well, by Jove, it is. It's good to be here. It's even greater to be here for that many shows in this amount of time. Yes, indeed, and it's especially great to be here for this episode with our very special guest. So, Mark, why don't you introduce our special guest for us? So, if anyone is wondering what we'll be talking about on this show, how about we wait a minute and I'll give you listeners a chance to look back at some prior Talking Space episodes for a hint. Take a look at episode 319 from May 2011, 325 from June 2011, 413 from April 2012, and 423 from July 2012. Tick-tock, tick-tock, beep, time's up. Okay, I'm sure you guessed that what those shows have in common is a most uncommon guest. Today I'd like to welcome for the fifth time from the Johnson Space Center, NASA's Associate Program Scientist for the International Space Station, Dr. Tara Rutley. Tara, welcome to Talking Space. Hi, guys. It's really good to be back. You don't know how much we appreciate your joining us and filling us in on the, the science of what's happening at the space station. And I've got to tell you, I find I have more and more things that, that I want to learn more about. So the, uh, the, the list of, of things we're curious about has gotten longer since the last time we talked. No kidding. And I've been learning more and more here, so hit me with them. I'll be happy to share. Okay. We'll, we'll take turns probably here starting off with just a few, but first, can you tell us a little bit about how science on the space station relating to exposure of materials to space, what the connection is to the Mars Science Laboratory rover, also known as Curiosity? What's the connection between the space station and our friendly rover on Mars? Uh, that's a good question. So, uh, you know, one of the major goals of the space station is to help advance exploration beyond low Earth orbit. So, um, so what we've got is something that's sitting, it's in a payload that's sitting on the outside of the space station truss, the external truss, and it's called the MISI experiment or the MISI investigation, and this is the materials for ISS exposure. Um, and basically, it's a pallet uh, containing lots of different types of materials, and the goal here is to expose these materials to the harsh environment of space, so atomic oxygen, ultraviolet radiation, um, temperature swings, uh, even uh, micro-orbiting uh, debris. So, um, so this, this particular payload kind of cycles out every few years. We've gone from MISI-1 all the way up through, now we're on number 8, and so all these different pallets have gone up and come home. And uh, one, of, uh, one, of the, one of the parts of MISI-2... Uh, one of the materials was testing out um, a certain type of uh, paint, a paint or a coating that's an electrically conductive coating, to be specific. Um, this kind of coating uh, it, it sat out on Missy for, I think it was four years, came back home, and uh, the investigators found that it could be useful for, uh, for further spaceflight because it, it survived the harshness of the environment. But the cool thing about this coating is that it dissipates static electricity. So um, it's useful when we go beyond low Earth orbit big time uh, when you're exposed to the, the radiation environment, such as what uh, Mars Curiosity is going through right now. And so 
put two and two together, the coating survived the MISI environment, um, and now it's being used on the critical power unit for the Mars Curiosity rover. And so um, protecting the most critical parts of the, of the device, right? With no power, you're not going anywhere. And so the idea is to dissipate the static electricity that, would, uh, that, that uh, Curiosity is being exposed to that could damage its components. And so it's just one example of how we're using Space Station as a link between low Earth orbit and, and, and exploration beyond low Earth orbit. And so there's lots of, you know, that, that's just one small example, um, but there's lots of that kind of thing happening. And I, I tell you, with, with the Missy payloads, the cool thing about it is that now with all the different samples that have been processed, there's a database that's being developed right now where all of the sample um, information is, is going to be deposited in one large repository and, it's, and it'll be accessible. So uh, while we have the data on lots of different types of samples, um, you'll be able to go and mine them, find out what's best for use in, in space. And already that information um, from some of the earlier MISI payloads, uh, some of that data is contributed to improving um, spacecraft uh, hardware components already, in particular uh, specific satellite materials. And we've already seen, if you ask commercial industry, a decrease in um, development time by up to 50%, so an efficiency in 50% just by making use of the information that's come back off of the MISI payloads and being able to develop their, um, their hardware for spaceflight. So it's a pretty cool thing, and not only for you know um, advancing low Earth orbit, beyond low Earth orbit, but also commercial and commercial industry satellites and um, and other and other components. I believe right now with Missy Eight, there's also a swatch from the future um, spacesuits that are being developed to go uh, in some uh, beyond low Earth orbit, and also some of the Orion um, materials that are being developed for that capsule. So. It'd be neat to get that to get that payload back and take a look at what comes from that. That's fascinating. I mean, you know, for for years, I guess I've been hearing about, you know, uh, Missy One, Missy Two, and uh-huh. never really grasped that it was something that um, that had that kind of potential for for everybody, not just for one little test, but something that would impact you know, future missions and spacecraft and, and materials like that. Um, yeah. That's something. One thing I was wondering is that now SpaceX has gotten in the game, and with their CRS-1 mission, they regained the capabilities of bringing experiments up as well as back down from the space station. What exactly was brought down on that first mission, and how did it survive the little failure that the freezer that it was brought down in had? Ah, good, good question. All right, so SpaceX return, we're super, super excited about that. Still a little pumped up from it, even though it's been uh, a, a couple months. But, um, yeah, we've, we've gotten our samples back. We, we were able to, because, um, so because the capsule is powered, can provide power, we can return uh, our samples in these freezers and keep them nice and, and cold because even even certain samples on orbit, even if you freeze them a while, they'll still have a shelf life. So the, the, you have to get them home and you want to be able to process the samples anyway and get start getting your data back. So um, so some of the main samples that came home were um, some blood and urine, which are critical. There are a few uh, plant samples as well. But the blood and urine uh, return is critical uh, because it's contributing to our nutrition study for one. Um, but they also, uh, the blood and, and urine sa- samples will go in a, in a repository that's kept at, at JSC, at Johnson Space Center. And in the future, um, now that we'll have all these frozen samples uh, being kept under lock and key, we'll be able to uh, put out a call for proposals as to what scientists might want to look at with, the, with these astronaut samples. But in, in the meantime now, um, the nutrition study is pretty critical because uh, out of that lab, they're finding lots of information about... Um, some of the changes that are going on at the biochemical level in the crew members, some that even contribute to the vision uh, changes that we're seeing, some that contribute to the bone and, and muscle, uh, you know, concepts and the ideas that are that we're seeing, that the decrements and strength and mass um, contributing to their uh, their vitamin D status, as their overall hormone levels. So, uh, so if you heard Investigator Scott Smith talking about getting his urine back, that was like the gold for him, right? So, uh, so if you're into anybody else, but gold to us is what he said, and so it was pretty critical. Now, um, with the return of the samples for uh, for SpaceX One and the the freezer issue, 
fortunately, the samples didn't get... Um, uh, fortunately, the freezer, after the freezer powered off, uh, di- the freezer didn't get warm enough to impact the sample. So we believe we've got really good samples um, that were preserved. And so with the first flight being, as for any vehicle, you're going to have issues. And um, we know that we accept some level of risk on that uh, with the science. But um, fortunately, the, the uh, issue, uh, we assessed it. Science turned out to be okay. We're going to reass- we're in the process of reassessing it along with uh, SpaceX troubleshooting. We're watching the SpaceX go forward plan and coming up with uh, impacts to science and the potential science returns that we're that are planning on coming home for SpaceX too. And just kind of putting together a story as to um, you know what samples do we want to to send home? Do we want to keep any on orbit? The idea being unload the freezers as much as possible and get our samples home to our scientists who've been waiting to process that data. So it's being looked at, um, and uh, number one, obviously, the number one uh, go forward on anybody's mind is to preserve the science. So as we do at NASA, anything we do best, there's nothing we do better than plan and replan and contingency plan <laughs> back up to the contingency plan. So <laughs> so we're looking at it closely, and I think we'll, we'll come to some conclusions as we get through the holidays and get a little bit closer to to launch for the next vehicle. So at this point, you see no problem in continuing using SpaceX to return samples? Oh, no, absolutely not. Um, gosh, we were overall just pleased with the returns and, and the capabilities there. I'm, I'm excited to see them come so far and having, having taken as many years to develop and uh, push them to stay on task and push them to stay on schedule and keeping safety in mind and the return of our science is primary. Uh, from the inside, I'll say it's been... Super, uh, super cool to watch. So, um, no, no problems at all with SpaceX return, and we're looking forward to Orbital coming online as well. Another thing I was wondering is that NASA has announced that coming up in a couple of years, they will have the first ever one-year-long mission to the International Space Station. So there will be humans on board for a complete year. What kind of science opportunities does that give you, both in terms of long-term experiments and actual human health experiments? Oh, very good question. So I think with regard to human health, it, it, it's probably the obvious in that, um, you know, the longer that we can extend our presence up there at a given time, um, then we're going to get some really interesting data as one individual, one sample stays longer and longer and longer. We can really have a complete profile from beginning to end on um, different things like uh, bone changes, muscle changes, you have one subject that you could attempt a couple different countermeasures on and look at the response over a period of time. You also have a repeat flyer um, with the, with these guys. So um, so you have also previous spaceflight data to compare it to. So you have a sample size within itself that's, that's uh, advantageous as well. But um, definitely as we go beyond low Earth orbit and the mission gets longer and longer, we're going to need more data points like this on particular uh, lengths of time on, on individuals, and uh, it'll be interesting to get all kinds of uh, good samples back from, from the crew health perspective or the crew health standpoint. Um, now, with regard to science, the really neat thing about that is some of these investigations, I mean, in the regular laboratory, you have you know one scientist who may be working on a set of, um, of investigations his whole life. And so the key to science in a laboratory setting is repeatability and usually have the same person or at least group of people within a lab repeating the same investigation. So I think with, with our, our long-duration stay crew members having hands-on access to the science and hands-on participation in these investigations uh, usually takes at least a little bit of a ramp-up time to get, you know, familiar with station and familiar with the investigations. But the advantage, the advantage now in this long-duration stay is you have one continuous person running all these uh, different investigations for a full year. And so you have consistency among the payloads, consistency within a particular investigation as well, um, almost like a, a true proxy scientist who would be involved in, in you know, one, re- one experiment that could be repeated over and over again through a period of a year. And that's the cool thing about station in general is you want a laboratory with repeatability. It's not just one and done because if you're an investigator, you send something up, you get your samples back, you may see something, wow, you know, you know not what we expected or we should, we should advance on that. And that's the opportunity you get um, nowadays with station. We're making it more accessible to be able to repeat investigations and, 
and uh, and also it depends on the, the sample types that you want to get back. So it's consistency um, on, in the implementation, I think, for for the re- for the nominal science payloads, and quite certainly extension of sample points um, throughout one invest throughout having one human uh, presence over over a full year as opposed to six months. Some some systems we may find in in physiology may not change from six months to a year, but others might change quite dramatically. So um, so it'd be really interesting to look at what we see, and then as we go out past that one year increment, how we might modify the way we do things in future one-year increments or in future six-month increments. Um, it, it may just open up a whole new set of possibilities of investigation of science that we've never even thought of before. So um, this is also a pretty unprecedented effort um, with our partnership with, with our Russian colleagues in that we'll, we'll be sharing data, we'll be collaborating on the investigations together, and so it's a very cooperative and collaborative effort um, with with goal with end goals in mind, uh, and that is to go beyond low Earth orbit. And so, before the crew even um, starts the plan for, or I should say, even before um, as as the, before the training starts, the scientists and Ed Russia and NASA will be getting together and coming up with a common um, plan for implementation on human research and using these 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 guys as human subjects. So that's pretty unprecedented and pretty exciting. Yeah, that's quite a step from back where the space program first started, where the, the questions were, you know, could an astronaut even eat or drink in space? Yeah, exactly. To, to think <laughs> of now we're we're looking at, at things in our in our in our body that are microscopic yeah. measurements and small changes and trying fine to predict tuning. where they're gonna go. Yep, fine tuning. That's right. Back in April I asked Michael Barrett at the uh, Discovery Departure event at KSC, I asked him, I said, because I knew that he had had a, an ISS stay uh, and also that he had, had flown shorter flights on the shuttle, and I said, do you think we're at a point where, where maybe, you know, six months that uh, the changes stop? And he said, we just don't know. And that's when I grasped a little bit of what you're talking about, where mm-hmm. tracking, uh, tracking this data and changes long term. Yep, because we just don't know. Yep, he's exactly right. Well, I've got to ask. Last time we talked, you you spoke for a few minutes about some research with fire. <laughs> and I'm sorry, but the more I think about fire in space, it, it just about scares me. Now, <laughs> now I, I know they've got some really uh, complex devices to to do their studies and to do it safely. But at the time, you, you couldn't tell us everything that was there because uh, why were there some secrets? Tell us oh. tell us more. <laughs> sure, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to follow up on that. So the last time we talked, I said that we were on the verge of, um, we were actually, the scientists were really surprised who were working on um, a flame experiment inside the combustion integrated rack. And this particular investigation, um, what they do is they take droplets of fuel, for example, heptane, and uh, they'll present these droplets of fuel in the rack, and two igniters will come together and burn the fuel, and it's containerless fuel processing, containerless uh, burning. So what you get is a sphere, a ball of of flame. And then investigators are um, investigating different characteristics of this ball of flame and and, um, the temp- different temperatures, the amount of soot, um, and just the overall characteristics of fire of, of different fuel types. And what they found was something that was repeatable. And this was where you know they would burn their fuel into a droplet, and um, as as soon as it would extinguish, it would get get a little bit dim, and then and then all of a sudden the flame would reignite, and it would reignite in the form of a shape that looked like a red toroid like a cloud and it was uncharacteristic because because when all the fuel got burned up that should pretty much be the end of it so there was something that was continuing and um, they think they had a grasp on it the last time that we talked they wanted to hold on announcing because scientists like to public they like their publications to come out first so <laughs> right they like to publish first before we we let the cat out of the bag so they wanted to make sure what they saw and what they saw was something called a uh, what they determined what we were seeing was a cold flame and um, when flames burn hot, that's a thermal flame as the uh, fuel gets oxidized and things get used up. 
And um, on Earth, we have such. Uh, we also have cold flames. So we have thermal flames and we have cold flames. And cold flames are more li- likely to do with uh, chemical reactions. Now on Earth, when we see thermal uh, thermal flames, usually um, they follow after a chemical flame. So usually, if you have some kind of link, it would go chemical first, a cold flame, and then to thermal. But what we're seeing on orbit is a thermal hot flame leading to a cold flame, and so that's backwards from what we would have expected here on the Earth. On Earth. And quite certainly it was uh, unexpected in microgravity. Um, but what we're thinking is because of the, um, the lack of uh, convection in, in, in gravity that there potentially is some continuing of a, of a flame going on, um, maybe due to the moisture, maybe there's excess uh, fuel that's in a moisture cloud around the way this, this, flame, this thermal flame burned, that, the, that it didn't completely go out and that the coal flame reignited um, in the presence of some other um, com- components that were in, in that chemical mixture. But so it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting thing, um, unexpected, and they liken it to the fact that when you burn a fire here and the fire, you think you put it out, but you have these small little embers that keep, keep burning and keep the fire, you know, you could potentially reignite. It's still a fire risk. Well, they're thinking they feel the same way as uh, when they're looking at these cold flames. So you think that you think that your 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 heptane, your fuel, has burned down and completely been used up, but then all of a sudden you could potentially get a reignition, <laughs> and it produces a scenario that's uh, quite uh, both fascinating as a discovery and kind of eyebrow raising as uh, when you're talking about how fires burn and behave in space, because it also has implications on how you'd put them out. And so uh, it's been. Um, to say really fun for I think these these investigators to to uh, to actually see this and since have uh, included their objectives on these different flex investigations to include looking at these cold flames a little bit more and getting a whole lot more characteristics and, and data on how these cold flames behave too so the, the thermal flames leading to cold flames is pretty cool and, uh, and now it's been published, and so it's out, out and shared, and they're already on their way and in, in, in repeating these results and trying to continue these investigations. Was there an aspect of, of these investigations that, that connected to um, materials, like fabrics and, and such that, you know, like crew clothing and material in the station? I, I'm drawing a blank on where I, where I caught that little tidbit from. Ah, you you might be thinking of in Mir. Um, they found that uh, when they burned a candle in um, in microgravity on Mir, they saw the cold flame effect, and that was a what they thought was a buildup of the of the wax uh, wax vapor. Um, and so they'd seen that before on Mir, but with regard to um, to on orbit, um, I'm not quite sure if it would be linked to crew clothing. Mostly, I think it's a, a propulsion or um, fuel situation um but uh but i know they've seen something similar on mir and and the, but weren't expecting to see it with the fuel that they burned a little while back there was an event that we actually helped sponsor a little bit and that was the youtube space up challenge where they gave students the opportunity to submit an idea for the science experiment to be flown on the space station now i know one of those actually just came to essentially an end, and that was one involving spiders. Can you explain that experiment a little bit and how that came about? Sure. Yeah. One of the um, one of the winning investigations was um, from a student uh, from Egypt, and his was to look at how uh, uh, jumping spiders behave in microgravity. You know, we've sent spiders to space in the past, but really uh, was to look at how they could potentially, if they build their webs any differently, if they behave differently in web building in microgravity than they would on, on the ground. But in this case, with the redback spider, which was a winning entry of, I think, over 2,000 entries, um, this particular spider, was we were looking at how it attacks its prey. Because the way it attacks its prey on Earth is that it will stalk it for a little while, and then when it's ready to attack, it'll spin um, one single line, I call it a lifeline, but it'll spin a line of silk to kind of catch itself. It's kind of like a tether so that when it attacks its prey, jumps at its prey, if he misses, the, the tether would, would serve as his lifeline and catch him. So it's kind of like a, a gravity mechanism, gravity-driven mechanism as, as the spider attacks the prey. So the student had a question, um, wanted to know how the spider would behave in microgravity. Would he still need to, to, to shoot that line? Um, would he attack its prey and miss? 
And so we sent the two adult spiders up in uh, two separate habitats that were designed for uh, space station. In fact, we've used them before. And um, the, the prey was Drosophila, which is a fruit fly. And so we set those spiders to work and watching how they uh, would attack their prey. And in the beginning, the spiders were a little confused and kind of missed their prey. They started to shoot their lines, so they behaved like they would um, on, on the ground. And then uh, ultimately they, they were able to catch their prey and eat and survive. And once the investigation was done, um, we sent them home, uh, both alive, on the return. Uh, one, one survived the return, and that was Nefertiti. Nefertiti uh, ended up coming home, um, going through spider readaptation, <laughs> and and the, the cool thing about the, the readaptation was there really truly was uh, some effects that we saw in readapting to microgravity as she then attacked her prey on, upon return. So she, so there's one incident, and I'm not sure if the video is public yet, but quite certainly it will be eventually where where she attacked her prey uh, and missed and totally fell on her back. And you could see her, you know, on her back, kicking her legs, trying to reorient herself and get back into position, and she reattack again. And after a few uh, attempts, she, she was able to get her food, um, which was also fruit flies here on Earth. Uh, and so she she went through a little readaptation phase, recovered, got healthy, um, fattened up a little bit, and then uh, and was, was sent to the Smithsonian uh, in D.C. in their insect um, habitat area where she lived for just about a week. And then after that, I think I think she she might have figured this was enough for her. She's ready to retire. And so she expired uh, about a week after her time at, at the Smithsonian. But she gave us some really neat um, insight. And that is into uh, differences in behavior between a microgravity and a gravity environment. And this is why I like the student proposal so much, because you get stuff... you. You wouldn't even think to try, you know. So you can try all kinds of cool stuff, and um, and so this was the one, one of the results from the YouTube Space Lab uh, uh, competition. So super fun and exciting. We posted a story about it. <clears throat> you can find it at uh, nasa.gov forward slash iss dash science. If you click on the latest news, we have a little web story uh, written about about the whole uh, YouTube Space Lab spider. Uh, event and, and and how that whole thing unfolded, but pretty cool, pretty cool results there. Those are always fun to watch. Yeah, it really seems like some of the experiments that you do with animals and creatures of these types bring back some interesting results. <laughs> yeah, definitely. If you think about it, um, we're all creatures of gravity. We've all evolved around the need, you know, around the need to fight gravity or work with or against gravity, whichever the case may be. But we are all creatures of the gravity vector, the way we're designed, our bone, our muscles, our behavior, the way we even think, our laws of nature. So <clears throat> truly, um, you know, you can use your human subjects and see quite quite obvious changes there too, but sometimes the more subtle changes and the more um, fascinating changes come from the animals and even the plants. Even the plants behave differently. So those are really neat. Uh, it's, it's just nature as a whole. It's pretty cool to watch. Tara, I found something that uh, I'll just toss out there and see if it rings a bell. Uh, the experiment called BASS, B-A-S-S. Um, oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. that, I think that's what was tickling my my memory. Oh, yeah. Burning and suppression of solids. Yes, burning and suppression of solids. Um, yeah, so that's burning. Um, that, that's performed in the microgravity science glove box. It's another combustion investigation but they're looking at burning different types of materials. That's what you were getting at, yes. <clears throat> it's another investigation burning different types of materials, all kinds of cloths and things, looking at the burning characteristics, and then um, pushing different airflow rate at different airflow rates of, uh, of true airflow across the flame, and also looking at suppressing them with uh, nitrogen. So looking at different uh, suppression systems and how different types of cloths, that are different types of materials, respond to burning at different airflow rates and then the attempts to, um, to put them out, extinguish them with what we would normally put them out with, on, uh, which would be nitrogen. So yeah, that's right. Very good. And that's ongoing, well, it was ongoing um, for a few months, a few months ago. Um, it's te temporarily on hold right now as we move the um, in-space investigation into the microgravity science glove box. Um, the, and we'll pick up on BASS again, I believe, in a little while, but uh, InSpace is performing its magnetorheological 
runs, um, and that's a colloidal investigation looking at um, how a magnetorheological or smart fluid system responds to an electromagnetic field in a microgravity environment. So these are the systems that are um, just kind of fluid, and they have these magnetic particles inside, really tiny, small magnetic particles. When you put an electromagnetic field around, that whole suspension will turn into a solid. And so it's important to check that out in a microgravity environment and look at the characteristics and behavior of of those particles where you don't have gravity causing sedimentation and settling of those particles. And and this is important, actually, I'm going off on InSpace, but it's pretty fun, it's pretty cool because uh, they actually use these systems here on Earth, these magnetorheological smart fluid systems in things like um, earthquake suppression systems. So some of these newer buildings are outfitted with these smart fluid um, uh, shock absorbers. And so if there's there's any sense in that uh, earthquake uh, changes in movement of the building, these systems will apply that electromagnetic field appropriately and make make these uh, dampeners more stiff or more fluid depending on uh, the frequency of the changes of the building in an effort to, to suppress some of the damage caused by uh, earthquakes. And so one of the problems with these earthquake suppression systems is that these fluids, these, these colloids, or these colloid suspensions, uh, the particles, the magnetic particles tend to settle. And it's a challenge in keeping them mixed. And so if we can figure out how they behave when you take gravity away, then you can do a better job at improving the systems here on Earth um, as well. So BASS has moved out temporarily, and Space uh, 3 has moved in, and then once those those in-space runs are completed, they'll move BASS back in and continue burning up uh, materials. (laughs) And that certainly has an application for, uh, for any spacecraft. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um. How about we open up to any of the favorite stuff that, that you've brought along? We've been asking you questions about things that got our attention. Take it away, Tara, on, on anything. You got all the mic right. <laughs> you got the microphone. It's all yours. We could be here all night. <laughs> but uh one of the cooler things I think that's happened uh happened over the month of December from November thirtieth to I think just last Wednesday, the twelfth, December twelfth. The entire space station attitude was adjusted by a little over seven degrees, just in an effort to collect, uh, to meet some major science goals. So it was an unprecedented uh, agreement between all the all the international partners to actually move the space station uh, in attitude in an effort to collect more uh, observations of the sun. So this is in support of the European Space Agency's um, investigation called SOLAR, and SOLAR has instruments on it and between the two of them they can accurately measure um, absolute and extreme UV and UV spectral radiance from the Sun during a full Sun rotation so it's so it's basically observing the Sun and we want to do this because it's being able to observe the Sun those those sunspots help us predict space weather help us uh, get a better handle on our climate changes here on Earth uh, the heating um, you know the regular the heat from the Sun versus you know the global warming induced by just our presence here. Um, but there's a whole lot of information you can gather just by um, observing the sun, and that's what this investigation does. But the thing is, uh, the science goals here, and this, this investigation has actually been on orbit for about five years, but um, their main science goal would be to obtain continuous data from, uh, from one uh, complete solar rotation, and that is a 27-day cycle. So complete, complete observation over 27 days of the sun. problem is, that when they go uh, through a complete cycle, uh, because of the uh, critical pointing device uh, of this particular payload and the way it's positioned at the sun, and the way the sun um, or the way the station passes um, periodically uh, through through its beta angles, you can't get you can't get a full rotation. You can't. You're always going to have like a 10 to 12 day gap, a loss of data. And so one way to overcome that is to change the space station's attitude. And so uh, uh, that's what we did. We changed the whole vehicle, moved the whole vehicle to get that gap of 10 to 12 days. And uh, in this case, it was during the, the, the winter solstice, which is a short gap. It's not, it's not 10 to 12 days. In this case, it's just 8 to 9, which is why they picked it um, to do. And so they actually tilted the station um, on November 30th and tilted it right back to nominal attitude on uh, December 12th is pretty cool and ESO is able to get a full now they're able to get um, a full uh, solar rotation a full sun cycle um, over 27 days and 
that's pretty massive. <laughs> You're moving the whole vehicle to accommodate space station science, and um, and it worked. So uh, now they'll get to bridge those bridge sun visibility windows to capture a full sun rotation. So that was cool. Something else that's cool that I wanted to share with you guys was um, we were talking about animals and the changes that you see in animal behavior and development even um, in response to the microgravity environment. But I also mentioned that plants are pretty sensitive too. Plants evolve you know, around the gravity vector and the way they grow, we thought, was gravity dependent. The prevailing theory had always been that plants are mainly driven by the gravity vector. But there was an investigation that was done on station uh, called TAGES back in 2010, I believe. Um, and the TAGES investigation sent up some plant seeds, Arabidopsis seeds. And Arabidopsis is, a, is kind of a, like a, mustard, a mustard plant derivative. And they sent a few seeds. And the way seeds grow on Earth is they'll send shoots up to the sun and roots down into the dirt. And the roots, as they, as they grow, they wave and skew and they move around so they in search of water and nutrients. And um, the prevailing theory on how these plants grow has always been that it, these, roots are, these roots wave and skew because of gravity and the way that um, the gravity kind of pulls on it, that one major effect is, is gravity. And so with the Tejas investigation that, uh, that went up, the samples uh, that were able to come home and be analyzed have, have told us that um, now this publication that came out, I believe it was last week, has challenged that theory because um, it turns out that, that, uh, that the waving, the amount of waving and skewing, or the type of waving and skewing that are happening in the roots are happening the same way in microgravity as they do in these plants on the ground. And, um, and that's pretty critical because, we, you know, with, with gravity been, being the, the major driver for plant growth is what we thought, um, this tells us that there are other factors in play. In particular, um, with regard to pages, it's photo, it's the light. And so um, this hardware that grew the plants had light, light at the top where the shoots are. And I was saying, it, basically what that tells us is that light also plays a critical role. We always knew light played a critical role in plant growth. But now when you take that gravity vector completely away, it's, it's interesting to see what kind of an effect that light will have on, on these roots, even root growth. And so it's a, a new challenging theory, um, the idea being that um, it's important for understanding uh, how these plants grow, especially as they're looking to find nutrients in, wa and, in water. It's important for us and developing our own crops here on Earth because the better understanding you get on how these plants grow, the better understanding you have on agricultural um, processes and how we can uh, maximize efficiency, efficiency of plant growth but in space as well, because it's a huge challenge to grow plants in space for, and for the big reasons being for food, right? So if we can uh, identify things like this, is, which is pretty groundbreaking, uh, it gets us one step closer to going beyond low Earth orbit and supporting, you know, hand in hand with what, what we just talked about earlier tonight, which is those longer duration um, stays for our crew members. And so that's pretty, pretty fun stuff. Plants are pretty smart. And, um, and they are just, uh, you know, they've been around for millions of years. And so when you see things like this, it really tells you something about where we've come from and, and how we really are truly uh, creatures of the, of the gravity environment, for sure. I remember reading uh, a blog by one of the astronauts uh, in the past year or two where he wrote about the, the care and feeding of his plants that he was, you know, part of his daily routine I guess was checking on his plants and, yeah. how, and how they were doing absolutely it's not just um, not only that's fully about food production but it quite certainly part of the argument that comes with it is um, is just uh, mental health and, and morale definitely I don't want to interrupt you from your favorites but something just crossed my mind and I remember that we talked about it when I first met you at KSC what's up with AMS2 it, the silence is deafening <laughs> it's definitely it's deafening for everybody. We all want to know what's <laughs> up with AMS too. Oh, so yeah, we're all just kind of standing by, waiting for some some word of of results. But uh, the team is being very quiet and you know patiently collecting their data. Lots and lots and lots of data. And um, every time we think that we might be getting close to to hearing something, that you know. They're still processing, so they want to do diligence, as any scientist would, and make sure they 
they, they were able to tell a story with what they have and process the data appropriately. But um, that is one of my favorites. So uh, I'm just, just going to hang out and keep waiting to hear something, hopefully soon. But you can't rush these things, right? So <laughs> just try to busy yourself with some of the other results that are coming in. Well, sometime in the future, I hope that we're talking and you say, well, there's a little bit about this, but I can't tell you more. I'm, I'm waiting, <laughs> yeah. for that, waiting for that teaser like you did on these experiments uh, with Flex. I would love it. I will tell you there's some um, interesting bone results that are, that are going to be coming out in the next few months that I can't tell you now. <laughs> but uh, it's, uh, some interesting bone countermeasures. Uh, that are being developed commercially, and so I'll leave, I can leave you with that little cliffhanger. <laughs> and that's interesting because that that has a, a application here at home. I mean, if you're talking yeah. about bone and bone health, Definitely. you know, we we think of the effects of of um, osteoporosis and and related problems that are such an impact to not necessarily the elderly, sometimes to younger people too. That's right. Those that are immobilized um, or with debilitating diseases or injuries where you can't get around and it's a disuse thing. Um, so I'll tell you, there's some, there's one part I can tell you and then and then other results I can't, but uh, the, the one thing I can tell you about was a publication that came out, I think it was September, uh, again from the nutrition lab, Dr. Scott Smith, who you know collects that blood and urine. Um, he was able to 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 uh, do a study that found that those uh, crew members who have been faithfully using ARID for high resistance, the advanced resistive exercise device on orbit, and taking uh, their right amount of recommended amounts of um, vitamin D, which I believe is up to 800 IU uh, for crew members, um, and also they've been taking those who have taken in the eaten all their food, eaten all their caloric, caloric intake. Those, those that have done that on station are showing to, they've, it's groundbreaking, they've actually been able to maintain bone mass. Mean bone mass is maintained in our crew members who are being compliant with their exercise, their vitamin D, and their, their meals. And that's groundbreaking. We've never been able to accomplish that before. And, um, you know, normally you lose bone mass at a rate of 2% per month up to, depending on where, where we're talking in the body. And um, even before the advanced resistive exercise device, we had uh, the bungee-based um, IRID, which is the interim resistive exercise device. And we're seeing, with ARID's capabilities of being able to go up to, um, oh, yeah, I, I believe it was twice the amount of resistance that IRID could provide. So it has huge resistive capabilities, way many more exercises that target the, the lower back and the lower body for a bone benefit. And, um, and just way many more different exercises that our crew are coming back maintaining their bone mass. Now, that doesn't mean they're maintaining quality. We don't know about the quality. We've done um, DEXA scans that tell us that the bean, mean bone mass is being preserved, but you really need to do more in-depth uh, scans on the, on the bones to look at the structure and, and the quality of the bone because that's where it counts when you're talking about preventing fractures and things. So... So it has implications for our crew members. Now we know we can at least maintain bone mass without any real pharmaceutical countermeasures, which is critical. And it says a lot for those of us here on Earth, too. So, again, using microgravity as the osteoporosis with a disuse model, um, do, you know, get your high-impact resistive exercise in, take your vitamin D, eat the right amount of calories uh, to preserve that bone, and, um, and it's going to add to your health. And... Um, so that's the first part. The second part um, is, is a series of investigations that are um, being analyzed right now that, that talk about some potential uh, countermeasures for bone loss as well. But not ready to share that, those results quite yet, but, it, <laughs> but it's really cool to know that, you know, at least with resistive exercise, vitamin D and the right amount of nutrition, you're, those, those uh, bones are being at least maintained with uh, mean uh, mass. That's great to hear. It's really encouraging because yeah. I honestly thought, well, this is this is an insurmountable obstacle. It's just going to be part of what spaceflight and microgravity is all about. And to hear yep. that there's a possible mitigation, there's something really promising. Wow. Yeah, definitely. Now there's still some bone remodeling that's happening again with the with the structure. But yeah, I mean, this is for as long as I've followed spaceflight, right since I was a kid. It's always been a big challenge, and now. Now it's uh, we're getting closer, and boy, with the with the extended stays on orbit, who knows? It's, it's we're going to fine tune a whole lot of stuff, so we'll get a whole lot of cool information coming in. Do you have some more uh, goodies on your list? 
Yeah, one last thing I wanted to mention that um, crossed my desk this morning. Uh, one of the, it's kind of it was an on-orbit demonstration that happened last week, which was the first time we ever teleoperated a free flyer on the inside of space station. And we have these small little tiny Pico satellites that are inside space station. Everybody knows and loves called spheres, and they're little circular satellites um, that run on carbon dioxide propulsion. And normally you can program them by sending up an algorithm, and then they, they can dock to each other. They can demonstrate um, navigation techniques and uh, guidance techniques. And, and so it kind of started out um, a couple years ago as kind of a docking demonstration of, of autonomous docking capability. Well, now these spheres have gone through lots of iterations and lots of different types of um, test demonstrations, and you can do all really kinds of cool things with these things to make them do and demonstrate new things. And one of the latest things that, that they did with these spheres was they've mounted um, a Nexus smartphone to the sphere itself, one of the spheres itself. And this smartphone has an Android um, uh, platform on it with open source code that's programmable. And so what you get is now a controller that is attached to the sphere. And this controller um, allows you to well, control it from real time from the ground rather than sending up algorithms, you know, a couple days later trying it. But you can actually manually interact with this now. So last week there was an on-orbit demonstration of this function, which was the first time ever that Mission Control um, was able to control these sphere, sphere satellites. And what they did was, you know, ran some scripted runs, performed some scripted runs that already had, um, was already programmed. And then based on the results they got back, they would, change up the program and cause the spheres to do other things. And what these spheres were doing were floating around the cabin and taking um, video and a visual survey of the interior of the space station. And they were sending that video down to the ground, and the ground would look at the video real time and say, basically, now go, go over here and check out, scan this area and tell me what it looks like, go over there, and go to all these different targets. So... <clears throat> And so that was pretty critical in um, being able to demonstrate tele-operations tele of a free flyer on the inside of space station. And it's part of a uh, human exploration technology program that's funded by the Office of the Chief Technologist out at NASA. It's part of the overall effort that also includes Robonaut, by the way, um, of these autonomous, you know, ways that we can get robotic, greater increase the robotic demonstrations on space station and, and help us go beyond... You know what? What can we do? What can we use? What what kind of non-human interactions, or what ways can we use robots, so to speak, that we can control from the ground, um, and that we don't have to involve humans in? That might be, you know, more tedious or maybe more dangerous. And so it's another just really super cool way that we're showing that space station can be the, the technology demonstration platform for for advanced things. And so it's really cool that, that that was a first. It was a first-time um, operation of, of spheres in that way, and so it was a pretty big deal. i got a question I almost hate to ask, but I know it's on the minds of, of a lot of people that, that really care about the, the space program. Does your office have a, a plan A, a plan B, a plan C, an event of, of different changes to the budget? Do you have concerns about that? You know, we're... I don't know. I'm optimistic about the budget. Um, you know, in terms of Plan A and Plan B and Plan C, <laughs> I don't think we have one. I think we 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 plan to the to the science that we get. We have marching orders for the year, and we, you know, our goal in the office is to go out there and get the most and the best science that we can get for space station, and then um, we we go off and implement it. If we get threatened by a budget, then it's our job to come back and say, well, these will be the impacts, the value of the science that will be lost, or these will be the impacts to the value of the science. And as a nation, um, and, and as NASA's goals, one of the top goals for NASA is to get the most use out of space station for its taxpayers' dollars. So I feel like, um, you know, even though I know, I know we're in a tough economy, um, I at least have seen so many positive things in the last year, even given our tight budget, that our, our um, program has been able to pull off with regard to space station science. I'm seeing, even with restrictions, just ways that we're getting smarter about um, using those restrictions. We're getting smarter about um, consolidating efforts on science and getting good research programs in place with data uh, potential for data sharing and getting repositories set up. There are all these really good um, ways that you can maximize the use of the science 
even in a tight budget situation. And that's one thing our office and our program has been really good at doing. And the people that are in my office and in the program are really committed to it. So they're very talented people. Um, so plan A's, B's, and C's. Uh, B's and C's. We go with the plan A. B's and C's don't exist, but we can tell you <laughs> what the impact would be <laughs> if you if you present us with lots of different scenarios. And that's what we do. We assess, reassess, and as science come in, comes in, we uh, compare and value and, and just constantly reassess against our capabilities and do the best job we can just like the rest of NASA to make it work because that's what we're there to do and it's challenging and it's fun. It's good stuff. I think every part of NASA that just amazes and excites people that uh, your office is every bit head and shoulders, you know, right there with the the, the hardware and with the right. G-Wiz things and uh, wow, totally. that's, that's, that's good to hear. I'm encouraged. It's a fun place to work. It's very... In- I'll tell you, from the inside, again, I think I said it last time, and I always say it's so fun place, such a fun place to work because the people there are true leaders, and they truly believe in the value of the space station program. And I'm just floored at all I keep seeing, and the longer I'm there, the cooler it is. <laughs> so I'm so happy and proud to be a part of it, So, and I love sharing it. So that's why I thank you guys for, for reaching out and, um, and let me spend so much time sharing all this cool stuff with you. And on that note, Dr. Tara Rutley, we thank you very much for joining us here on Talking Space. Absolutely. Anytime. And just one more time, if people want to find out more about some of the science going on on the space station, where can they go? They can go to www.nasa.gov forward slash ISS dash science. And then we're also on Twitter. Uh, We are um, known as ISS underscore research. And uh, we can tell you about the coolest science in 140 characters or less. <laughs> thank you very much, Dr. Tara Rutley. You're very welcome. I'll talk to you guys again next time. And, of course, thank you for joining us, Mark Ratterman. You know, so sometimes I feel like a hog because I've talked to Dr. Rutley a few times uh, by myself where I've just managed to, to get some time and record. And I'm glad that, uh, glad that you could be here. It's a lot of fun and uh, even better when we can share it with our listeners. Indeed, I was honored to be here for it, and I hope that you guys really enjoyed it, because I know I sure did. And once again, of course, we thank you for joining us, and we should be returning very shortly to our regular news shows, and we hope you look forward to those. But until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. (laughs) 